0: Ephesians chapter three. Paul has been stressing something, specifically where we've just come from out of the second chapter. And he's been explaining some major themes to his readers. And just to kind of recap some of these themes, and you can kind of look, glance back in the first couple of chapters and see that right at the get-go, Paul is talking about predestination, election, adoption. He's talking about the necessity of prayer. He teaches about total depravity at the beginning of chapter 2. He talks then about the immeasurable love of God. And then he talks about salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Remember the five solas that we talked about a few weeks back. And most recently in our text, Paul has been teaching the Ephesian churches about the unity that comes about from the gospel. And he's going somewhere with all of this, and he's going to make it obvious in chapter 3 today remember though previously gentiles were not included in the commonwealth in the community of israel paul even says that they were apart from god he says they were without hope verse 12 of chapter 2 said that but look at verse 13 of chapter 2 similarly at verse 4 he says but now So it's this transitional statement. He's comparing what was said to now what he's going to say. And what he says is this beautiful truth that Christians, all who believe, have been brought near by the blood of Christ and through the cross. And so Jason prayed this morning about the cross, and that is the crux of our faith. Without that, we don't have anything. And so I hope that we can start recognizing what Paul is doing here. He's emphasizing something, and it's this. Peace with God has been won for both Jews and Gentiles alike, and it doesn't matter your heritage. It's by grace through faith. And he fleshes this idea out more in chapter 3. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 13 together. I'm in reading out of the to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray one more time together. God, use your word to instruct your people this morning. Give me grace to communicate well so that your church is built and your name is glorified. In Christ's name, amen. So we can see that what Paul is saying here is is he's just expounding this teaching that Gentiles and Jews worshiping together in one church, that's the mystery that's just now being revealed. Paul just comes right out and says it. It's not a mystery anymore, is it? He's saying it's this. Now, four times in this chapter, he says mystery. He uses this term mystery. He uses that term seven times in the whole book of Ephesians. But each time he does it, he's talking about unity of the believers in Christ. And it's not because of their common ancestry. It's not because of their common goals. It's not because of their common hometown. He always says it's in Christ. So when he's talking about the mystery here, he's talking about the joining of believers together, regardless of where they've come from. You can look back in chapter 1 Verse 9 and 10 is the first time he use it. He says, the mystery of his will, a little bit further, he says, is to unite all things in him, all things in heaven and on earth. It's all wrapped up in Christ. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, earthly things, heavenly things. All of these things are being united by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. This hadn't been made known. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. This hadn't been made known to previous generations. But now, through the preaching of the gospel, those outside the Jewish nation can be heirs, can be members, and be partakers. Just think about that again for a moment. Those who were outside were now welcome inside. Those who had no family were considered full-fledged brothers and sisters in Christ. God had made a way... Where there was no way before. There was no hope, Paul said, for the Gentiles. We cannot overstate how important this truth was to them, is to us, or how how jolting it probably was for them to hear this in that time. Paul's teaching on Jew and Gentile believer worshiping together was a monumental shift in the nation of Israel's understanding of salvation. That largely stood unchanged for generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years. The promises of God, they're trustworthy and they're good. But before Christ, they were reserved for the people of Israel. They were reserved for his chosen people. And so now Paul is coming with a new way of looking at this. And he's telling churches all over that God's promises are still for his chosen people, but it's just that those chosen people aren't who they thought they were. His chosen people aren't just those who were born into a Jewish family. His chosen people are not just those who have been circumcised. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. He says, heritage is insignificant. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. He says circumcision is just an act of human hands. Paul's saying that God's chosen people are all who believe. Jews and Gentiles would each together and apart, they would wrestle with this concept for a long time. It was controversial. And even Peter wrestled with this and needed to be rebuked in Galatians chapter 2. He was not treating the Gentiles as full brothers in Christ when people came, he kind of pulled back from them and Paul called it hypocrisy and said that he needed to rebuke him. Paul reminds us that if a person is justified, it's not because they have followed the law, but it's come through faith in Jesus by believing in Christ. If you want to turn there, you can. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24. This is one of the most convincing arguments of Paul's in this idea of Jew and Gentile both being full-fledged adopted members of God's family. In verse 24 of Galatians 3, Paul says this. He says, "...so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God now through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ." There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Jewish heritage was not the standard for being a child of God, Paul is saying. Believing in Christ is. So Jews have, at this point, they're being told they have no more claim over The truths and promises of God than the Gentiles do. This was hard for them to hear. In Christ, Paul is saying, no matter what their heritage is, they are heirs. You are an heir of the promises of God. So the mystery that Paul's describing here, I would say is a redefining of who God's people really is. Now, I don't know that this is quite as outwardly and hotly debated today as it was for Peter and Paul in that day, but I think And I fear that Christians in America still have this kind of mindset in us, though. Let me explain. I think in the church, sometimes we still view people as insiders or outsiders. We see people as insiders when they believe the same way and they practice their beliefs the same way and they look like us. And outsiders are those people that are way over there that we're content with them being over there. And instead of desiring and truly wanting to go tell them that Jesus came so that they could be a part of his forever family, we are we at least seem to be perfectly content most of the time to just leave them outside in order to keep our religion nice and neat. But guys, the gospel doesn't allow for that. I loved what Stephen said last week. He said that true Christianity is when we see hard and broken people in this world and out of our love for Christ... We move towards them. We move towards them. The gospel says, go to the widow and the orphan. Go to the sick and the lonely. Go to the hard places. And when you see people like that, you don't withdraw. You go towards them. But we don't often think that way. Sometimes we say, well, you know, I'm I'm not sure that I can worship alongside of that person because they don't think like me. They don't practice their faith like me. They don't They don't sing the same songs that, that we sing. They don't even use the same Bible translation. Now those I, I get are sort of silly things. And yet we inflate them in the church to make excuses for not being the people that God has called us to be. It seems like we would rather join Peter in his hypocrisy than actually join with Christ in telling others about him. But church, Ramsey Creek, we cannot be that kind of people because the gospel calls true Christians and moves true Christians to action. If we truly love Jesus, we will be a part of communicating how God reconciles sinners back to himself in Christ. We will be a part of that. I want us to notice though, look at verse five here. How is this done? How is all of this revealed to Paul and others? It was by the spirit. It was by the spirit. Don't fall for the lives of people who would tell you that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist or that He's not part of the Godhead. He's not part of the Trinity. There are people that believe that. There are people in our area that believe that. Don't fall for that. The Spirit is the one whom God used to reveal truth about Himself to mankind, to the prophets, to the apostles. In verse 8, it says, It was the Spirit who gave this truth to these guys as a gift of God's grace to go and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles to those on the outside. So Paul then reveals the purpose of the church being made up of Jews and Gentiles together in verse 10. You can read that with me. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let me just read that again so we're all on the same page. He says, through the church. Paul did not say that God's wisdom would be made known by famous preachers or big-name worship bands or relevant advertising or persuasive debaters for the Christian faith. He says, no, he says God's multifaceted and perfect wisdom is revealed through the church. God uses the church to reveal his infinite wisdom to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Peter says this kind of thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, it was revealed to them... Talking about the prophets, he says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things you have now, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And he says things into which even angels long to look. That's a surprising statement. Things into ev- which even angels long to look. Brothers and sisters, God's plan and purpose in creating the church is something that even the angels don't fully understand. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are the only all-knowing beings. And angels, demons, the devil himself, they don't have that kind of power. They don't have that kind of ability or authority. The spiritual powers of the universe see God's plan for redemption through the life of the church. So Paul is saying, is it any wonder then that churches regularly struggle with being unified. Think about this. If the church is how God's wisdom is revealed, where is Satan going to spend a lot of his time attacking? It would make sense that it would be the front lines, the church, right? If the church is how God displays his wisdom, then that's where he's going to be focused on. Think about this. He's going to be focused on keeping us focused on each other, instead of fulfilling our true calling as the church and to go out to a lost world and call them back to repentance and reconciliation with God. C.S. Lewis wrote a book years ago in the the 40s, a book called The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if anybody's read that. It's an unusual book. I'll just set the stage real quick. There's two main characters in this book. It's written from the perspective of, of a senior tempter from a demon named Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape. And he's got a nephew who's a junior tempter. And Uncle Screwtape, is given, and his nephew's name is Wormwood. And so Screwtape is sending letters to Wormwood trying to teach him how to deceive mankind better. So it's an unusual premise, but it, it really accurately and, and painfully reveals the ways that Christians are deceived by the enemy. Uncle Screwtape is trying to lead... Uh, help his nephew Wormwood lead his patient, that's what he calls this guy that he's tempting, to lead his patient astray, even though this man is a guy who's gone to church for a while. So just something to keep in mind. I'm going to read a quote from this book. But something to keep in mind. When, when the book says the enemy, it's actually talking about God. And when it says our father, he's talking about Satan. So the things are reversed because it's from the perspective of a demon. I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some clique within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say Mass and those who say Holy Communion when neither party could possibly even state the difference. Make his mind to flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that are, that pew actually contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. You see the things that Satan uses to distract the church? It's silly things. And this was true in 1942 when he wrote this. And it's true in 2019. Now, we may not get worked up about somebody's boots that squeak. Hopefully, we're not going to get worked up by that kind of a thing. But there are things that just annoy us sometimes. And Satan would love to have us distracted by those silly things instead of being in sync with Scripture instead of being in sync with Christ. Because when the church is in that state of being out of sync with Scripture, it denies the wisdom of God that it's supposed to be revealing. As Uncle Scroogtape points out, we would be fools to spend all of our time within the church looking down on one another and arguing with one another. The church is the revelation of God's wisdom to the spiritual realms. But it's not only made known to the spiritual realms. I think Paul here, back in Ephesians chapter 3, is stressing unity between Jews and Gentiles as a clear proclamation of the gospel on earth as well. Look at verse 9, back in Ephesians 3. Paul says that God gave him this message to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Do you know what this tells me? This tells me that churches who faithfully preach the gospel help the world understand God better than the famous preacher on TV. This tells me that the little country church whose members hold fast to the truth reveals more than the big name worship band with the hit song on the radio station. And I don't say it that way because we're a smaller country church. The fact is most churches in our country are 200 members or fewer. So does that make these congrega- congregations irrelevant? that are small, well, they, they can be irrelevant if they're not holding fast to the truth of the gospel. But are these smaller churches irrelevant because they lack the influence of the larger churches or the people on TV? Does this mean that we should be content to just tell people, it's okay to watch your favorite preacher on TV and listen to your favorite worship band on Spotify and call a church service and be good? No, we shouldn't. We can't do that because there's purpose In the church, gathering together in person. If that's a a concern for you or you don't understand that completely, I'd encourage you to refer back to our Together series that we preached through several months ago that really explained a lot of this, why we gather. What you get and what you give from rubbing shoulders with your fellow church members week after week are things that can never happen from watching somebody on a screen or from interacting with somebody on Facebook or something like that. Churches reveal the wisdom of God as they faithfully preach and live out the gospel, regardless of size. As strange as that seems to us in our modern day age, this is God's design. But Stop and think about the alternative. If God's wisdom is most revealed in popular preachers or in worship bands or even specific denominations... What happens when those important people in those things fail? What happens when we find out that the person that we've looked up to, that we're counting on, isn't living the way that we thought or isn't living the way that they even should? Too often, it wrecks our faith. And just about as often, it wrecks churches. I'm afraid that this is happening right before our very eyes as well. I mean, people that, that we've looked up to have abuse allegations being brought before them. It's almost a regular thing now in the news. Leaders that we admired are suddenly changing their views on what they think the Bible is really teaching on specific issues in our day. Even our Southern Baptist Convention, brothers and sisters, has major problems with not reporting sin and covering it up. If we hitch our wagon to any of those things, to any of those popular people, then the moment they disappoint us, our view of God is often shaken. I think too often we've made a habit to look to the preacher on the podcast rather than the church member sitting next to us. That's not the way of Scripture. God is most revealed through the church. It's not just through the guy standing up preaching each week either. It's through the church the members of the church if and when a leader falls there's no need to be devastated because we know that the church follows christ not the man here's the reason why i think one of the reasons at least why god chose to do it this way to reveal his wisdom through the church i think it's in chapter 2 verse 9 this is in immediate context talking about salvation, but I think it applies here as well. He says, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. When you join a local congregation, you're making a commitment to God and to a group of people. You pledge to use your giftedness. You pledge to submit to its leaders, to care for others, and to follow Christ faithfully. Paul says, there's no boasting in salvation. You don't have anything to do with that. There's no bo- boasting in the church either, brothers and sisters. We're part of one another. We belong. Paul puts it that way. He says we belong to one another. We function as one body and every member matters. Being a part of a church that calls sin for what it is, where, where burdens are shared, where there's joy when it gathers and where members are held accountable, that's what keeps us humble. That's what stays boasting away. From the newest believer to the most seasoned saint, regularly rubbing elbows with Christians in the church keeps us humble and keeps us accountable. And it clearly proclaims God's wisdom because it brings people together. The church keeps us from boasting, and it reveals God's plan for redemption and unity in the body, in his body. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The Gentiles are welcome into the church because of the gospel, because of the truth. Verse 11 says that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of salvation, all of welcoming Gentiles into God's chosen family, into his people, had its eternal purpose completed and fulfilled in Christ. This was a mystery until he came. Before the foundation of the world, this was how God designed it. How God would have it played out. The redemption of man originated before creation and was realized in Christ Jesus. This is a plan that no human being ever conceived. Only God. And verse 12 of Ephesians 3 says, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. These are important words to us. Confidence, we have boldness, we have access As joint heirs with Jesus, we have confidence because of him, not because of our own efforts. Well, what do we have boldness for? Flip over to uh, Hebrews chapter 4 with me, verse 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So because of all of that, because we have this great high priest we can identify with, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Some of your translations, instead of confidence, they talk about boldness. Let us come near boldly. Let us come boldly before the throne. This is what we have boldness for, to come into the presence of God. Because of Christ, because of our great high priest, we have boldness to approach God himself. Brothers and sisters, it is unbiblical to teach that a Christian has to go through another person to go to God. That is anti-scriptural to say that. Because saying that, we deny the deity of Christ himself, and we're denying everything that he accomplished on the cross. So believer, because of Jesus Christ, you can go to God. You can go before His throne yourself with boldness, confident that He not only hears you, but He's promised to give us grace for help in the time of need. I hope that we'll just let that soak in for a second this morning, because I guarantee you that there's areas in your life where you need to go boldly to the throne of God and say, I can't do this. I need your grace to help me. And we've refused to do it up until this point, subconsciously or not. We've refused to do it because we think we can handle it ourselves. Because our pride has risen up and we don't think we need the cross and we don't think we need a high priest that we can just fix it our own, on our own. And the author of Hebrews and Paul himself is saying, no. You go boldly before the throne, but it's not because of who you are. It's because of Christ. And when you do that, we have this blessing of having grace for help in our time of need. And it's in Christ that we have this boldness. Paul says that we have access to something. What is it? He's already told us back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He said, and he came, talking of Christ, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to who? The Father. We have access to the Father. Because of Jesus we have peace with God. And access to the Father. Paul tells the church in Rome the same thing. In Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How do we stand when the storms of life surround? We don't stand in our own might. We stand by faith in His grace with boldness, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. So this word, access, also has the meaning of drawing near to something, to an object or a person. In, in this case, obviously, we're talking about drawing near to God the Father. I think we can understand this concept when we think about parents and kids. We think about a small child. So moms and dads, when your kid gets hurt, especially when they're real small, when they get hurt, what do they want to do? They, they want to run to you. They want you to pick them up, hold them on your lap, and tell them it's going to be okay. Maybe put a Band-Aid on it. Maybe just hold them and they just want to be close. They want you to comfort them when they're afraid or nervous or unsure. They find comfort in our closeness, don't they? Guys, Christians specifically, when you're unsure or scared or anxious, don't first run to the self-help section of the bookstore or tune your TV To the most experienced preacher or run to the most renowned psychologist you can those things have their place but first run into the comforting arms of the father because he longs to hold you close he wants to take you on his lap and hold you close and comfort you in his presence is where god promises that you'll find grace to help in your time of need It's in his presence. It's close to him. And so boldness and access and peace are themes in Paul's writing. Because Paul and his readers have the same access through the Spirit to the same Father, it's possible that it may have been confusing for them that he is then in chains while they are free. In the moment of Paul's writing, he's, he's in chains and he's... He's saying, you have access to the same father that I have. Well, why are you in prison for the gospel? Why, why are we free? Why is this happening? I think sometimes we feel the same way. Sometimes we feel this way where we say, God, why is, why is my good friend struggling or suffering right now when my life seems okay? Why are they having such difficulties? I know they want to trust you. I know that they're following you as best they can. Why are they struggling right now? And we think maybe like the Ephesian Christians. But on the flip side of that, I think sometimes we say, God, why am I struggling? Why am I hurting and suffering when other people seem to be doing just fine? These are both questions that are raised and the Ephesian Christians may have felt the same. What does Paul say? How does Paul comfort them? Look at what he says. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Paul's tribulations and his sufferings were to be an encouragement to the Ephesian churches. Verse 13 tells us that. He says it was to their glory. It was something that they could have confidence in. His suffering, something that they could have confidence in. That even though someone would suffer for the Lord and for his gospel, it was worth it. Because the mystery of God's plan was being made known through his suffering, through his preaching of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, in your struggles, in your suffering, remember, others will be made stronger as they bear witness to your faithfulness. Do not lose heart. Here is why Paul chooses and says not to give up, not to lose heart. He says it's for your sake, so that as Grace extends more and more. The praise of God will extend more and more. The glory of God, he says, do not lose heart. We do not lose heart because our faithfulness in trials, even as intermittent and as feeble as they may seem sometimes, our faithfulness in those trials brings God glory. He says, do not lose heart because you have unlimited access to the Father. He says, do not lose heart because you have been brought near through the Son." And he says, don't lose heart because you have been sealed by the spirit. Ultimately, we don't lose heart because God does not lose us.